Welcome to the seventh episode of Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a food and queer history podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm a scholar of food, gender, feminist, and tech history, and the author of the book, Ingredients for Revolution, a history of American feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses. episodes, we've been talking a lot about feminist and queer food history and what is going on in the present. Today, we are going to shift our framing somewhat. I'll be talking about how the framing of our food futures sometimes falls in a kind of retro-futurism that perpetuates racism and sexism. We will then chat with filmmaker, writer, and podcaster Anna Sigrether about feminism, fermentation, and rot. This episode challenges some projected food features that come from white supremacist, patriarchal, and colonial and heteronormative perspectives. This episode celebrates the work of feminist, queer, black, and indigenous scholars, activists, and artists, and people of color. So let's talk about retrofuturism in food. As we've talked about a lot during this podcast, the question of who is making dinner is a fraught one. Of course, under capitalism, when some labor is financially compensated and other labor is not financially compensated, this creates problems and inequities. Answers to the question of who is making dinner or breakfast or lunch or snacks have reflected wide-ranging views on gendered divisions of household labor, class, racial, and gender disparities surrounding who is paid to cook and the role of technology in food production. We've also talked a bit about how proposed solutions to the who is cooking question have included writer and activist Charlotte Perkins Gilman suggesting kitchenless homes and communal cooking in her 1898 book, Women in Economics, a study of the economic relation between men and women as a factor in social evolution. And of course, the history of American corporations encouraging consumers to buy pre-made foods in the 20th and 21st centuries. Today, we have increased dining options from fast food, takeout, delivery, and meal pack apps. There's this one solution also that's remained in the cultural imagination, the kitchen computer or kitchen robot that takes over the task of preparing a family's meals. So I've written a bit about this topic for Atlas Obscura and a longer form peer-reviewed piece for Gastronomica, which you can find the links for in the show notes and in the transcript. But basically, there's a trope in popular culture in which fictional computerized systems and robots take on the task of kitchen work. You can see this in everything from the cartoon The Jetsons to the Disney Channel original movie The Smart House and more. There's also the way that corporations throughout the 20th and 21st centuries have also advertised their own kitchen products as being this techno-futuristic solution. So here I'm thinking of how companies have marketed dishwashers or ovens or microwaves especially microwaves and how that comes into play. Kitchen robots and computers, especially from the second half of the 20th century, are typically coded as white and female. 
Their marketing promotes a retrofuturist vision in which outdated gender models are projected onto contemporary or even emerging technologies that reinscribe sexist, racist, colonial, and heterosexist stereotypes. While the promise of kitchen computers and robots seems progressive, these technologies do not threaten the gendered division of household cooking. Instead, these devices offered women a reprieve from the drudgery of kitchen tasks through a capitalist solution. A product buys a woman's reprieve rather than upending the nuclear heterosexual family and redefining household roles that create a more equitable division of housework. Plus, so many of the solutions are framed in heteronormative visions of the future that also depends on a very binary understanding of gender. And you could see that in a kind of wordplay way, such as computer binary code. But here I'm really talking about the gender binary, and these solutions also reinforce a settler colonial vision of the future. Rather than economic solutions such as paying people for their work or having policies such as universal income in which everyone has money they need to survive regardless of what kind of labor they do, the solution often is for companies to sell something. Rather than creating systematic change to make a more equitable society, we're often offered ways to try to buy liberation, which of course does not work and is not equally or equitably distributed. Also, what a limited sense of imagination. In depictions of the future in which there are flying cars and robots, many works of sci-fi still place the task of cooking upon women. We can see this in how cooking robots are gendered as female maids, such as Rosie the Robot in The Jetsons, or scholars such as Ruhat Benjamin in Race After Technology have pointed out. Robots in the early 20th century were often imagined as a replacement for Black American people who were enslaved. There are literal magazine pieces, such as in the January 1957 issue of Mechanics Illustrated, in which robots were suggested as a way to harken back towards a pre-Civil War era. The journalist O.O. Binder wrote in 1957 that, and I'm beginning a quote here, in 1863, A. Lincoln freed the slaves, but by 1965, slavery will be back. We'll all have personal slaves again, only this time we won't find a fight, a civil war over them. Slavery will be here to stay. Don't be alarmed. We meant robot slaves. Let's take a peek into the future, end quote, on page 62. Below the text, an image shows two robots dressing a white man and serving him food. Buttons in the background reveal that the man can request breakfast or dinner or a jet car, all with a single touch. The image caption reads, Robots will dress you, comb your hair, and serve meals in a jiffy. The article continues to describe this vision of the future, explaining that, starting this quote, down in the kitchen, Stila, the robot cook, opens a door in her own alloy body and withdraws eggs, toast, and coffee from her built-in stove, end quote, page 63. This 1950s white fantasy of the future relies on its own racist retrofuturism, imagining a future in which there's an end to slavery. Kitchen work in these early robotic fantasies is feminized and racialized, but then why are the kitchen robots and kitchen computers of the 1960s onward depicted as white and female? So we see this kind of shift within popular culture, in marketing, in kind of sci-fi depictions. So the kitchen computer has been a fraught space in white American imagination. As the hearth of the home, the kitchen has represented the place for comfort, softness, and tradition. As white women moved out of the home for the workforce in growing numbers in the later half of the 20th century, a prevalent fear centered on who was cooking dinner. 
The white cultural anxiety of the loss of tradition and culture was fed and simultaneously smoothed by corporations selling everything from hardware, appliances, microwave dinners, and recipe guides for working women, a problematic shorthand for women who worked outside of the home in addition to their unremunerated domestic labor. It's not that Black women and other women of color did not cook for white families and continue to cook for white families. Wealthier families who hired domestic help often employed women of color to cook and clean. However, discourse around robots instead indicated idealized white supremacist futures. And the white supremacist cultural imaginary is not strict gender roles that are preserved, but also an erasure of Black people and other people of color from the future. This dynamic occurs in both speculative technologies and actually produced assistant technologies. As scholar Thao Pham has argued in her analysis of digital personal assistants, Although, starting quote, although Amazon's Echo Assistant Alexa is never explicitly identified as white, is nevertheless aestheticized and characterized by Amazon using aspects that are underwritten by ideals of whiteness. End quote. The mapping of a white female voice onto a domestic worker figure causes an elision of the way that women's work in America and in the home has been di dictated by differences in race, class, and immigration status. With the imagined kitchen, computer, and robot, this dynamic continues. Kitchen, computers, and robots also exist outside of fiction, even if they have been impractical or fallen short of their promise to liberate women from the societal pressure to cook dinner. The first kitchen computer was the Honeywell Kitchen Computer, or H316 pedestal model, of 1969. The luxury department store Neiman Marcus sold it as a luxury item priced at $10,600 US dollars, around $78,000 today. It did not actually cook dinner, though. Rather, its functions included storing recipes, meal planning assistance, and balancing the family checkbook. And who do you think this device was marketed towards? The Honeywell was marketed for housewives within heterosexual relationships, of course, but it was with such a high price tag, and so it wasn't going to be for the everyday consumer. In many ways, it was more of an aspirational device, and it was really more of a way of marketing as a marketing ploy for Honeywell. Plus, buying the computer meant little economic sense for the target audience, especially as it required a two-week coding course to use. The advertising campaign's tagline was, if she can only cook as well as a Honeywell can compute. And this sought to hide that the device was merely a complicated digital version of a recipe card box and a calculator. And of course, that tagline was also imbued with sexism. I'm not going to go into detail right now, but aside from their prevalence in consumer culture, kitchen robots and computers were also prevalent in computer science magazines throughout the 1980s. We can still see these words today. In January 2021, Lily Robotics put, proclaimed to have created the world's first fully robotic kitchen. It's super expensive and super impractical. I don't really think anyone is putting this multi-hundreds of thousands of dollars device into their kitchens, but you can still see there's this kind of projected ideal of kitchen computer robotics. Reminiscent of Ruth Schwartz Cohen's classic 1983 text, More Work for Mother, which you should definitely read if you haven't already, the creation of kitchen computers or kitchen robots provides a technological solution that does not replace feminized household work, 
It merely perpetuates a retrofuturist vision, not to mention the practicality of this device in 2021 has yet to be seen. So today I'd like us to think about the tools that feminism provides us to imagine the kind of food futures that we'd like to see. Retrofuturism grounded in white supremacist heterosexual ideology was central to making kitchen technologies palatable to marketers and some consumers. This was reflected in films, home computing magazines, and the marketing and design of hardware and software. The white supremacist imagining of an all-white future centered on the nuclear family persisted throughout these mediums. The whitewashing and erasure of people of color from the future is why work by artists such as Alicia B. Wormsley, creator of the There Are Black People in the Future, is so powerful and important. As scholar and activist against educational surveillance, Chris Gilliard states, every future imagined by a tech company is worse than the previous. Rosa Eveleth of Flash Forward Podcast reminds us that the future is not yet written. We still have the power to imagine the kinds of futures we want to build. This leads us to ask questions such as, how do we want cooking and food to look in the future? How will kitchen labor be gendered? How will we understand our relationship with food and the environment? These questions bring us to our guest, Anna Segrether. Anna is a writer and artist whose work explores ecologies, language, olfaction, and food fermentation and brought. She ran an experimental research supper club in Winnipeg from 2013 to 2015, exploring invasive species and feral foods. In 2015, she spent time as an intern of Noma's Nordic Food Lab in Copenhagen, where she produced a series of audio documentaries about a summer spent living in a nomadic reindeer herding community in Samuland. From 2016 to 2018, she produced two seasons of Oxtails, a food history podcast with the Oxford Food Symposium in England. Until recently, she worked as a coordinator of Fireweed Food Hub, a nonprofit food community distribution project in Winnipeg. Anna is now based out of Montreal, where she is pursuing an MA in Media Studies at Concordia University. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to have you here and to talk about your film Rot and your views on feminism and food. Thanks, Alex. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. So why don't we jump right in? So how do you see the connection between feminism and food? I mean, in some ways, you couldn't have asked a bigger question because I think that there's just so many layers. Um, But I think for me, what really stands out with that question is is the issue of labor. I mean, um, we all, I think most of us understand that like sort of historically the production of food for the sustenance of life has been a pretty like gendered, um, a gendered task and unpaid labor of that kind has been sort of the site of a lot of contestation and feminist struggle to this day. Um, but I would say like a lot more personally, like in my life, my mom is kind of comes from the second wave feminism. Um, she ended up in a situation, I think, that she didn't really expect to be in domestically. Um, she got married when she was quite a bit older and had kids a little bit older. And I think she was not expecting to come into a kind of a housewife situation, but she found herself in that. Um, so growing up in a family where that was kind of the context and she was very vocally sort of talking about domestic labor and food and cooking and kind of being frustrated by all of these things very much influenced me personally. And so in a weird way, like I was kind of at the same time receiving these messages of like, 
you know, food is cooking domestic labor is very oppressive. Um, but on the other side of things, I just was actually naturally drawn to food or just for some reason became very interested in cooking. Um, and actually became really obsessed with Martha Stewart when I was like 10 years old or 11 years old, like right when the first Martha Stewart living magazines came out and was obsessed, like would save up my little babysitting money to go buy them from the Safeway check stand and like loved the sort of like portrayals of domesticity and like food and friends and countrysides and stuff that she would talk about. Um, and so I guess sort of like on a, just on that personal note, I kind of see this like connection between feminism and food is really like full of lots of tensions, like for Martha Stewart and also kind of for me, um, food was and tied to domesticity in this way that was kind of like self-expression. Whereas for my mom, it was really tied to kind of like oppression. Yeah, that totally makes sense in how we can kind of see that, how it carries through in your own work, especially with your filmmaking and your other projects. So your work connects feminism, fermentation, and rot. Can you explain these connections more explicitly? (laughs) For sure, yeah. And again, like, feel free to ask follow-up questions if I don't like answer everything um, that you that you are looking for. But yeah, I mean, I sort of came into fermentation through, um, I sort of came into fermentation probably before I really came into feminism in my own sense. I was talking about, you know, my mom sort of introducing me to feminist I- ideas when I was growing up, but I got really interested in cooking, got really interested in fermentation culture because, you know, around this time in sort of 2007 to 2010, there was this fermentation renaissance that was sort of happening in North America, Sandor Katz and sort of his uh, influence with his first books that were kind of a cult, a cult hit and then became more mainstream and popular. Um, And I think for me, fermentation was just like this really interesting way to open up our, our minds towards thinking about like what food is, what culture is, you know, we'd been living in this like couple hundred years of pretty pasteurized, pretty homogenized and increasingly so, uh, packaged sterile food. Um, and so fermentation became kind of like an interesting avenue for me as a young cook to start to be curious about not only like ingredients and recipes, but the cultural traditions, the landscapes and the way that food is sort of like food cultures and and dishes and techniques arise from landscape and through history. Um, so then how that sort of connects to ferment or to feminism for me um, came a little bit later. So I was working at this really interesting place called the Nordic Food Lab, which was at the time like the research body of Noma, the sort of world-renowned restaurant that does a lot of fermentation. And <clears throat> the Nordic Food Lab was very... Um, you know, it was kind of like this intersection of like culture and techno science, I guess I would say. And so I learned a lot of kind of interesting ideas there, techniques and stuff about fermentation, but specifically some of these kind of like ideas that were floating around. And one of these kind of key ideas that I still interested in and sort of still grappling with to this day is kind of post-humanism, this sort of idea that um, trying to sort of open up our way of thinking to not just center the human um, and I came to a feminist understanding of fermentation through posthumanism, trying to think about, you know, systems of domination within our food systems, systems of domination within labor and within, um, you know, our, how we're handling and, and working with other species on the earth just as a, as a whole. Um, so rot, I guess, <laughs> um, rot is just part of fermentation. 
um, it's, there's no other way to say this. Like there's, there's a lot of, um, fermentation is a really broad, broad category. It's really situated. It's really culturally determined. Um, but basically what we're always trying to do with fermentation is like limit pathogens, uh, and induce food preservation and the kinds of flavors that we like. So just as much as fermentation is kind of culturally determined, so is rot, but rot is kind of always the other side of it. That's so interesting. And would you say that fermentation also gives us a lens to kind of think about the sometimes maybe artificial binary between rot and fermentation and kind of how culture sees the difference or the kind of negative or positive connotations with the two? Uh, Yes, that's yes, exactly. So, I mean, I think they're both um, pretty cultural, cultural like understandings of fermentation and rot, like there is a biological definition of fermentation, which a lot of the times does not even line up with what culturally we call fermentation. Um, but yeah, fermentation is definitely because it's sort of like a, a social process that just as much as it is like a biological one and it has to do with food and food preservation and deliciousness and all these things, it is very much sort of like has positive associations. Whereas rot, I mean, we have a million expressions in English for how rot is kind of unilaterally bad. We say something's going bad, it's spoiled, you're rotten to the core, you know, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch, those kinds of things. So it's all about morality and um, immorality or corruption or contamination. Um, Yet, of course, the line between, and I think that's what you're asking, the, the line between what is the fermented and what is the rotten is always cultural and has been a site of a lot of like, or in kind of instrumentalized as a way to other people or to sort of, um, you know, say what is, what is sort of culturally acceptable or not based on who is the sort of like dominant force at the time. And we see this a lot in like, you know, colonial contexts for sure. And he recently made a film, Rot, but W-R, Rot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and can you tell us a bit about the making of the film, the kind of motivations behind it? something about the wordplay with the title, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess this kind of goes back to labor in a sense, because the word rot, which is, yeah, the title of the film, W-R-O-U-G-H-T, is the old-fashioned past participle for the verb to work. So um, it, in the sense of like a material being worked, like wrought iron we would talk about, or it also kind of implies... um, to inflict or avenge or to sort of like change. Uh, so like, you know, something, uh, it wrought a lot of change in this organization or something. We'd still use it in that way to this day. So I, it's also the homonym for rot, R-O-T, of course. And I thought that sort of bringing these two resonances together was like a really good way of exploring rot through um, these different lenses or these sort of different like angles of a prism um, that I was talking about earlier with with the sort of posthumanism, like what are these? What are kind of like the shifting and unstable, like I don't know, like ways that we can ta- start talking and thinking about rot, and not necessarily like enclosing it into one pat idea, because it's not, and it's always I think it's always a it's always in conversation with fermentation or with something else. Um, so so the film is really just trying to kind of explore that, and my work was writing the film, so um, I started off with a couple, we start off with spoil, which is kind of like one way of looking at rot. And then we sort of go into fermentation, which is 
responding a little bit to spoil and saying, okay, so here's kind of like the, we're enclosing it into our sociality now and we're making things delicious and it's convivial and great. And then of course, then we sort of go outward into compost, which is another kind of rot, one that is also kind of like useful and productive, even though it's not as, we don't put it in our bodies um, or at least not directly. And then we go into rot, which is kind of existentially threatening and sort of questioning the idea of like our own existence and our, you know, death and mortality and things like this. Um, and so I think that like the word rot does a lot of work. So it is kind of like a great uh, example of rot, but it's also like the sort of this, I don't know, if you will, kind of like a cosmic sense, like we are, we are also rot of these changes, like human beings and everything on this earth is like always being recycled, regenerated. And that is like the sort of the, just the sort of like the, the neutral process of the force of rot on earth is to regenerate, to redistribute, to recycle. Um, and so there's, there's sort of like an element of work in that too, that is, that's explored in the film. And for folks who are listening, hopefully they check out the film after listening to this podcast, but what can they expect to see, you know, podcasting in such a non-visual format? So like what, what's kind of the visual makeup of the film? Totally. And thank you for asking that. I get so caught up in the, in the words. The, the, so the film is, it's about 22 minutes and it's a time-lapse animated film. So it is all like real photography that my collaborator, Joel Penner, um, uh, captured with, with flatbed scanners and with some just regular sort of DSLR camera video and, and, uh, time-lapse videography. So it's, it's, none of it is like computer generated. It's all real images. Um, and then there's sort of, the images are stitched together of these beautiful close-up vistas of things molding and rotting and leaking and oozing and growing mold and then shrinking back and fruit flies coming in and, you know, exploding with bubbles. And it's just, there's just a lot, um, a lot of kind of images that we could see if we were looking in our rotting, stinking, you know, produce drawers of our fridge, but we don't tend to look at those things. So it's kind of just giving you this up close and personal experience of like encountering these, you know, scenes of scenes of decay. Um, and it's really colorful and it's really kind of feels like you're kind of, I don't know, on a hand glider, just like swooping over this big universe of, <laughs> of rot. One of the things that's so striking about the film is that within the rot, you see all of these different kind of communities of different organisms. And also with your different showings of the film, you've also kind of brought in a community aspect. So I was wondering if you can speak about some of your community work with the film. Yeah, well, I mean, we just had our Canadian premiere screening last week in Winnipeg, where I currently still am. And it was great. We, I mean, the film, we, we were working on it for six years. And so we had a lot of community support just creating it. And it was largely kind of very, very passion project. Um, so we had a great event where we brought community members who um, work with fermentation or work with compost or work with microbes or soil in, in various ways. And we invited them to come for an interactive kind of gala event after the film where they could sort of teach our community about what they do and how microbes kind of end rot itself just as a sort of force works in their work. And that was really awesome. Um, and we were lucky to partner with a really kind of awesome historic venue in the, in the city so that the event was free and people could just, you know, make it really accessible to, to all, which was awesome. Cause I think like for me, a big value with 
all of this work that I do is, um, and I know it's something like you share too, is like wanting to make your work publicly accessible and really like keep, you know, keep sharing ideas and, and starting conversations. And so really great conversations were had that night as well. That's so exciting. Um, so you've talked a bit about differences of kind of generational feminisms and different approaches for thinking about how to make a more socially just world. You've talked about kind of beyond the human and how rot and fermentation give us these other tools. I'm wondering if you see fermentation as providing some kind of guidance for new future feminisms or like maybe some of the tools that you've gained from your understandings of microbiomes and towards like making the worlds we want to build? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, and I mean, I think I, I have learned so much from like artists and practitioners who have like been thinking through feminism and fermentation together. And I think there's like so much that they've contributed to feminism and sort of like just to to thinking in general around the idea of embodiment and like co-living, living together better, issuing purity politics um, in food, but then kind of like expanding that outward, scaling that outward. Um, so I have a lot of, you know, a, a, I'm indebted to a lot of these thinkers and, and practitioners. Um, and I think fermentation has been like a really great counterculture and counterconduct as well in, in a lot of ways. But I think that... Um, as far as the future, you know, taking these ideas into the future, um, and what I what I kind of want to continue to work with is to think about how can we not only deal with these moments where everything's really hunky dory, where kind of conviviality is just like simple, or where um, there's not danger, where there's not kind of like moments of friction, and I think, um, like the, the scholar Heather Paxson has talked about this term microbiopolitics, which is kind of like, how are we as humans, um, navigating and sort of interacting with microbes and, and different species in general, I mean, at a micro scale to sort of try to navigate and not necessarily always control, but kind of work with to limit harm and maximize the good, um, and so I think a lot about that when I'm thinking about kind of like food futures and feminism and rot. And I think that rot sort of comes in to be a helpful, like because of its negative valences kind of comes in as a helpful guide to remind us of like, as feminists and as thinking about food, things have to be intersectional. We have to kind of like think about where we're standing within like the different like structures that present as danger or present as advantage, you know? Um, and so if we're, making a good ferment, we have to think about all of the conditions around and like try to prevent the rot. But, you know, if we're in a, in a society, like what is, to whom is something going bad? So Anna, what do you see as your ideal feminist food future? Ooh, um, I think like at the most basic, like one in which, um, people have like meaningful control over their food systems and like their access to food. Um, and I think that that requires some pretty huge changes in things. I mean, food and food access is largely just controlled by market forces, which are controlled by legacies of wealth and colonialism and imperialism and white supremacy. So it's like pulling at a big thread. Um, but I think at like the micro scale or at the sort of the accessible scale, um, food futures start with food presence. And I, and I like to think, think through, um, food through kind of this lens of like fermentation with the 
kind of kind of counterforce a rod at all times to think about, you know, what are the ways that we can act in solidarity with one another? How can we kind of create lively, bubbling, um, convivial situ- situations and also be aware of dangers, be aware of like where we're supposed to stand up to um, take action, protect one another and like really like sometimes like freaking take down, rot down like the structures that that we can and like those little strategic opportunities. Um, so, and those things become visible as we work in community and get involved with, get involved with um, community food security, food sovereignty projects. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking about your film and your visions of the future. Um, is there anything else you wish I had asked? Um, no, I, I mean, thank you for asking these, these great and really big questions. I, um, I hope it was, I hope I gave some good answers. I feel like I mean, you know, when you're making something, I'm, st- I'm still learning to talk about it. So thank you for giving me that opportunity to try to talk about it a little bit more. For more on the connections of fermentation, LGBTQ issues, and feminism, check out the work of Sandor Kratz, also known as Sandor Kraut. Learn more at wildfermentation.com. I've included links to Sandor's work in the show notes and transcript. Also, for more on food feminism and fermentation, check out my work with Dr. Maya Hay, who has continued this work editing the Musing series at foodfeminismfermentation.com. I also want us to be clear that any food future will be deeply tied to the past. This does not necessitate retrofuturism. For example, hosts of the Indigenous Futurisms podcast, Métis in Space, Chelsea Vowell and Molly Swain often talk about what they envision as the future they want to live in. Part of that future that they want includes returning the land back to Indigenous people. So these two Métis podcasters started a project called Back to the Land, Too Land, Too Furious hoping to raise enough money to buy a parcel of land in Lac St. Anne County, about 90 kilometers west of Edmonton, where Nakota Sioux, Cree, and Métis people lived and hunted. Also, Chelsea, who also writes under the name Api Dewey Gosizong, wrote a chapter in the graphic novel, This Place 150 Years Retold. In Chelsea's chapter, Kitaskino 2350, so 2350, Readers follow a young Métis girl who is sent from a decolonized future back to the 21st century. I also want to highlight the work of other amazing Indigenous scholars, artists, activists, and practitioners who work can inform our thinking about food futures. Way Joseph Stylet is an ethnobotanist and PhD candidate who is a member of the Squamish First Nation. Her work has focused largely on traditional knowledge renewal and building connections to place and to health through working with traditional plants plant foods and medicine. To learn more about her work, you can visit the link in the show notes and in the transcript. Dr. Tabitha Robin Martins explores the processes and practices of indigenous food systems, and her research includes how food as a discipline can operationalize the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 Calls to Action and the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry Report's 231 Calls to Justice, how Indigenous knowledges can be used as food literacy and the reclamation of Indigenous seed knowledges. To learn more about her work, you can visit the link in our show notes and in the transcript. I also recommend you check out the work of Ganyanga Haga, Seed Keeper, 
Rowan White, who is from Aquasasane. There's a great 2018 interview with her conducted by Gosia Rutkika. So I've posted the link to that interview in the transcript as well. Rowan White is the director of Sierra Seeds. You can learn more about Rowan's work with Sierra Seeds and her work on indigenous seed keeping at sierraseeds.org. Another project that Lisa Myers drew our attention to is Berlin Reads Brown Butter, which brings together Black Canadian artists and chefs to create installations, performances, and events in 2022. I've posted the link for more information in the show notes and transcript. Throughout this podcast, we've had the opportunity to speak to numerous scholars, activists, artists, and practitioners about their work related to food, labor, LGBTQ histories, and now also futures. I'm grateful to everyone who has taken the time to speak with me and share their stories and work on this podcast. This is the final episode of Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a food and queer history podcast, at least for now. It's been such a pleasure to share this podcast with you all. For more information about today's topics, please see the links in our show notes and transcript. All transcripts are available at thefeministrestaurantproject.com. My book, Ingredients for Revolution, A History of American Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffee Houses, is coming out fall 2022 from Concordia University Press. You can receive 20% off pre-orders with the discount code KETCHEM20. I've included the link in the show notes and transcript. An open access version will be released a bit later. I also wrote a zine about how to start a feminist restaurant published by Microcosm Press in 2018. I decided to write that zine after messaging with this week's guest, Anna Seagrither. I've also included the link for the zine in the show notes and transcript. Thank you to my co-producer, Sadie Couture, for editing assistance. Thank you to Sarah Nandi for proofreading the transcripts. Music by Tyler Antoine. Thank you, Shark, for the Insight Grant, which supports making my scholarship available in more accessible formats. And of course, thank you all for listening. It's been such a pleasure.